Hey, it's Randall here, and in this episode of Journal Club, we'll be discussing runner's knee, also known as kneecap pain or patellofemoral pain, with special guest Dr. Richard Willey. Richard is an Associate Professor in the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Montana. He received his PhD in Biomechanics and Movement Science from the University of Delaware. Richard has been a clinician for over 20 years, with expertise in treating runners of all ages and ability levels. His research aims to develop clinically effective treatments for persons with patellofemoral pain, Achilles tendon injuries and bone stress injuries. He has published over 50 peer-reviewed papers on two populations, endurance runners and tactical athletes such as soldiers. He has received funding to support his work from the United States Department of Defence and the Foundation for Physical Therapy. We'll be back with Dr. Richard Willey after this short message from our sponsor. If you're like me and sick of greasy, pore-clogging sports creams, then the Premax range of athlete and massage products are for you. Non-greasy, breathable and tried and tested in elite sport, Premax sets the benchmark in performance skincare. To find out more and experience the Premax difference yourself, visit www.premax.co. Be sure to sign up to the newsletter to get subscriber-only exclusive offers, invitations to Premax events, access to the Premax sports science blogs and 10% off your first order. Hey, Rich, thanks so much for joining me on the Journal Club this week. You've um, picked one of your own papers, um, which you wrote back with a number of very esteemed colleagues back in 2019 on patellofemoral pain or kneecap pain. Tell me about why you did that review paper in the start. Well, thanks for having me, Randall. This is a real real pleasure to be on here. And, and um, yeah, thanks for letting me talk about this paper a bit. Yeah, it's a, this is what's called a clinical practice guideline. And what a clinical practice guideline is, is supposed to do is kind of just like that. It takes, it's basically summarizes the literature and provides a theoretical and clinical and evidence-based framework for clinicians to try to uh, provide some standards of care. It's not necessarily prescriptive, but it's saying, well, you know, this is what the evidence is suggesting would be the best way to either evaluate someone or to treat someone. A big reason for that would be like, you know, if, for instance, if, if someone were to have a heart attack for like in Melbourne versus I live in Montana in the United States, you would expect that if you go into the emergency room that you're going to receive basically the same level of care, the same type of care with, with some, some variation. Um, physical therapy uh, can be a little bit different. You might go see a physical therapist in town for patellofemoral pain or kneecap pain, and then you might go see an, another physical therapist on the other side of town, and you might receive two totally different types of physical therapy care. And so that's where guidelines come in. And I should say too that guidelines are also in other areas of medicine and healthcare, so they're not they're not unusual. They're 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 well accepted. And so um, they're supposed to be very concise guidelines that not only do they provide um, uh, provide recommendations, but they also provide grades of recommendations. So how strong the evidence is, and that can help a clinician or a patient understand how serious they should take these recommendations. I think you did some great work and, it, and it's very easy to read. And as a clinician, it, it does give you a very nice framework to help treat people with kneecap pain, patellofemoral pain. One thing we spoke about just before we went on air was some of the risk factors that people can uh, have to develop patellofemoral pain in the first instance. So talk to that. What, 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 what people get patellofemoral pain? 
Yeah, I, I think that understanding who the typical individual is who might develop with femoral pain can really help us develop injury prevention programs. Um, and it can also help guide our, our treatments um, as well. And one of the things that we found with the more that we looked at the literature, we found that some commonly held um, beliefs when it comes to risk factors don't really pan out. And so for instance, um, it's widely thought that people who are um, taller, people who have a higher BMI, a higher body mass index, people who have weak hips, or people have certain alignment or structural things such as um, that they tend to overpronate. And so often thought that those individuals are at greater risk for developing patellofemoral pain. But there doesn't really seem to be a lot of evidence for that. And that's actually a really important thing to consider because as we as, as healthcare practitioners or um, patients or just the general public, if they're thinking about um, starting an exercise program and perhaps um, they, uh, they, are, are, they are a little overweight, um, oftentimes they'll be very worried about developing knee pain. And I think that that's kind of a societal expectation that you, know, you weigh a little bit more and you might develop uh, knee pain if you start exercising. So it ends up being a barrier for that person to start an exercise program. And so I, I think it's really important for us as clinicians to say, you know, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of evidence uh, saying that because uh, you could lose some weight that that is going to set you up for knee pain. And so rather the thing that seems to set people up for developing patellofemoral pain is if you make a really rapid increase in your training load. So if you suddenly start doing an exercise program and you haven't been doing anything, or if you have been exercising at a certain level, and then you suddenly ramp up how much training volume you're doing, or maybe change the type of training you're doing. For instance, if you're a runner and you're running inside on a treadmill, and then instead you decide to go outside and run a lot of hills, that's going to be a really easy way to increase your overall workload. And that seems to uh, precipitate the development of patellofemoral pain. And is there, I know, I'll ask you two things here, Rich, sorry, just to um, jump in. Is there any, can you quantify that in any way? Like people will say, don't do too much. And that, that can be subjective depending on what your mindset is at the moment. So, and also changing things. So as, if, you take your, if you take your research hat off and you put your clinical hat on and people say, um, listen, I want to build up to a marathon, how hard and how fast can I progress? What, what's your answer to that? Well, I think that's a million dollar question right now. And I think everybody's trying to figure that out. And I think that, you know, now with the, um, the popularity of wearable devices, such as GPS watches, and, um, you know, even if you just run with your phone, it'll track your, your overall running load. So it seems like we're, we're getting to be very, very good at measuring things. And as far as like determining what those measurements really mean from an injury prevention standpoint, um, I don't think we've really gotten there yet. And, and so I know a lot of people are working in this space and, and we are as well, just trying to understand what is too much. And, um, and I think that probably is a little bit different for everybody. And I think that there are a lot of things that kind of go into someone's risk of developing patellofemoral pain. And when you think about like, you know, that those, those uh, underlying risk factors are basically, um, I don't know, the uh, gunpowder, if you will. And then that that, that training uh, error is going to be that somebody lighting the fuse and that's going to cause that injury. And so I think that those things are going to be different for everybody. And, and I know for me, I mean, I'm in my forties now and I, I think that I can, I can't get away with certain types of training that I could earlier in my life. So I think that these things change, not even, you know, just 
you know, across different people, but also within the same person across the lifespan. But I think also other things can really um, influence this too, as far as like how stressed you are and how much sleep you're getting. And some of the other things that we're starting to gain a better understanding that seem to precipitate some of these, some of these injuries. So, you know, for instance, I know that's really a widely held belief that if you increase your running volume more than 10% per week, that that is, um, is going to be a risky amount of running, but it seems like some people can get away with that and others can't. And so one of the things that, that we do know is that novice runners, for instance, that they can't get away with making such big jumps in their overall running volume. Whereas someone who is an elite, someone who's been, who's had a really long history of training, they can experience greater fluctuations in their overall training load without developing an injury. And the number one injury that runners get is indeed patellofemoral pain. Great. That's some, uh, some terrific insight there. Now, in your paper, we're just going to move on to some of the interventions and the therapies that are used for people with kneecap pain. And um, in, in the paper, you did another excellent job of actually rating it and rating it on evidence. So uh, you, you gave an A for things that had extremely strong evidence based behind it, uh, all the way down to an F, which was essentially just kind of expert opinion. So uh, that, that makes it very easy to understand where the, the scientific literature is at at the moment. The strongest evidence by far, what it seems, is exercise therapy. So for people who have had, who have got um, uh, patellofemoral pain, kneecap pain, uh, the number one thing is to do some exercise and some strengthening exercise to help support the kneecap and the joint. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and it should be, you know, I think it's, it's really important that every uh, rehabilitation program for someone who has patellofemoral pain, the foundation of it has to be exercise therapy. Now you can do some other types of treatments in there as well, but if you have patellofemoral pain, for instance, um, just going to get a new pair of shoes, um, doing, getting some other kind of standalone treatments that we would consider to be like nice, nice to do, like maybe manual therapy or something like that. It, this is not going to lead to a, a lasting improvement and recovery from patellofemoral pain. Exercise therapy is really the name of the game when it comes to structuring someone's rehabilitation program. And when we, when we look at exercise therapy, um, the, the, uh, the thing that's most important is that it involves quadricep and hip strengthening. So and you should be doing exercises that are coupling, um, you know, exercises that load the knee and also exercises that load the hip. And ideally you're doing both of those at the same time. There's another one in the paper, which is patella taping. Um, so I'm old enough to be back in the old school where Jenny McConnell's patella taping was, uh, was all the rage back in the early 2000s. Um, and it works. Like, I mean, there's, there's some actually, there's, you guys gave it a B grade evidence for that. But the thing that I found um, interesting was that bracing was deemed not effective. So what's the difference between taping and bracing and why is there the conflict in the evidence? Yeah, so I, you know, I think that that's a that's a fascinating uh, finding, and and I think it should give a lot of us some pause when it when we stop, when we take a step back, and we we start to kind of maybe critically uh, or, uh, examine or analyze some of our preconceived notions of what causes patellofemoral pain and what someone who has patellofemoral pain looks like. So patellar taping, as you mentioned, it improves symptoms, but it's not helpful as a standalone treatment. So you have to couple it with exercise therapy. So we'll kind of get that out of the way, but um, patellar taping, it, it doesn't seem that um, 
it has to be quite as tailored as perhaps what you and I uh, learned. Um, I think uh, Randall, I'm guessing maybe you and I are probably the same age. I think we're close. Was was it was it was a PT? I started being a PT in 1999, and so I also learned how to do tailor taping and, and some of the other techniques from uh, from Jenny McConnell. And um, it seems like we probably don't have to be quite as picky with the way that we're applying the tape. And the big reason for that is that uh, taping doesn't seem to change alignment of the patellofemoral joint. So it might, when you're on the table, you can put a piece of rigid tape on there and, and it looks like it's shifting that person's patella. And the problem is as soon as they stand up and they start doing something that, that results in or requires a lot of quadricep force, that patella basically just goes right back into where it wanted to be anyway. And the reason why that's important is because we used to think that, um, that patellar maltracking or if your kneecap was tracking laterally, that that was a big cause of what uh, of, of patellofemoral pain. Um, but it doesn't seem that that's really the case. So it doesn't seem that like alignment of the patellofemoral joint sets somewhat up for patellofemoral pain. It also doesn't seem to be able to identify someone who has patellofemoral pain. And um, the nice contrast to that is patellofemoral joint bracing. So like a lateral buttress brace or some sort of brace that has the strap that's pulling that patella immediately, um, that definitely changes patellar alignment. And, and we see that in before the person contracts their quadricep. And then once they stand up and they start doing squats, and we see that with these dynamic MRI studies that shows that a, a lateral buttress brace changes patellar alignment as long as you're wearing that brace. And the thing that's really curious is that patellar bracing doesn't seem to result in improved outcomes with people with who have patellofemoral pain. So we've got an adjunct that doesn't change alignment that seems to improve uh, outcomes. And then we have another one that seems to, that, that actually changes alignment that doesn't result in improved outcomes. And so when we, when we think about that, we, we we're starting to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe some of those things that we used to think that patellar maltracking is not quite as important. And when we take a step back and we look at those MRI studies, um, that are looking at people who have patellofemoral pain. We also see that with, this is even without a brace or without taping, we see that you can't identify someone who has patellofemoral pain just by looking at an image. Um, and so that makes us think, feel pretty good about just sticking with, with taping. Um, and when, when you think about it too, that's nice because, you know, brace is kind of heavy and it can be difficult to put on and they're not, they're not awesome to wear. Taping can be is a lot more portable and it's a lot, a lot easier to apply as well. Is the takeaway maybe that it's got to do with not alignment and strength and the, the taping potentially kind of can increase the neuromuscular activation of the quads particularly? Why does taping work is the question. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. And uh, it used to be thought that, you know, patellar taping was going to improve the contact area or that footprint between your kneecap and your femur, but it doesn't seem to do that either. And so it might just be the tactile stimulation of this rigid piece of tape across your skin that it's maybe causing some sort of distraction to your nervous system. And um, you don't, you know, and then you're not focusing so much on your pain or central nervous system as processing those inputs a little bit differently and you're not sensing uh, pain. And the reason why that's really helpful when it comes to treating people who have patellofemoral pain is that if they're not as, if they're, if they're not experiencing as much pain with, with patellar taping, 
then you can load them up with more resistance. And we know that the heavier that you load people who have patellofemoral pain during their strengthening exercises, so they're doing heavier weight on a knee extension machine or heavier weight with a leg press machine, that they're going to have a faster and a better recovery from patellofemoral pain. And when we look at patellar taping, it seems to have the biggest effect in the first 12 weeks. So um, that's when we really want to be doing a lot of taping. That's typically when people are going to be the most irritable. And I think that's one of the reasons why it seems to be the most effective. Foot orthosis was also in there as an intervention. I've uh, got an A, uh, very effective. So what's happening there as well? I, I, you know, we've just been talking about maybe the, the bracing changes alignment, but it doesn't change the pain. Is it a similar story with the foot orthosis as well? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, if you remember earlier, I mentioned that foot pronation uh, or having a flat foot doesn't seem to predispose someone to patellofemoral pain as we once thought it did. did. But, but interestingly enough, using a foot orthosis seems to result in better outcomes, both six weeks and 12 weeks, and also even one year out from uh, the onset of physical therapy uh, for or the start of physical therapy for someone who has patellofemoral pain. So um, interestingly, you don't have to use an over or a custom orthosis. You can use an over-the-counter orthosis and you're going to get the same outcomes. So just a really inexpensive in the United States where you can get in for about 25, 30 US dollars uh, for an over-the-counter orthosis is going to give you the same outcomes if you buy a $300 or $400 custom foot orthosis. Um, and when you look at it, there's some, been some really nice uh, work uh, that Mark Matthews did as part of his PhD. And it used to be thought that if you had a, like a more flexible foot um, or a foot that tends to pronate a little bit more, that that person's going to do better with a foot orthosis. But they've shown that it doesn't, that you can't really predict who's going to benefit from a foot orthosis. So what we do in our clinic is we have people do a single leg squat with and without a foot orthosis. And if the foot orthosis seems to reduce their pain, during that squat, then we'll go ahead and stick with that for the first 12 weeks or so of the rehabilitation. If it doesn't seem to make any immediate reduction in their overall patellofemoral pain, then we just move on without it. And we do the same thing with patellar taping as well, too. If you don't get an immediate reduction in pain, it's probably not going to be the adjunct for your patient. And you just need to move on and try to find something else that might work. Some of the passive therapies that people, a lot of patients and clients will come in for saying, can you please rub this out or can you please dry needle me um, or can you please get some machines on there or take the, uh, the pain away? They don't work. Yeah, they don't work either. So ultrasound doesn't seem to result in improved outcomes for people with patellofemoral pain. Dry needling doesn't um, also. So you can dry needle all you want. It doesn't improve muscle force production and it does not improve patellofemoral pain uh, outcomes. Uh, we also know that manual therapy uh, does not uh, improve either. So if you're doing uh, patellar mobilizations or even sometimes you'll see published people doing lumbar manipulations for people with patellofemoral pain, that also does not result in uh, better outcomes for people with, with patellofemoral pain. Electrical stimulation does not either. So doing a lot of electrical stimulation to someone's knee, it's your time is much better spent uh, doing exercise therapy than having someone uh, do some sort of, of passive treatment to your knee. So yeah, as you mentioned, just rubbing a knee and doing some of those other things, it might feel good at the time, but it's not gonna really make things better. And it's not really gonna improve how fast uh, you're gonna get better from this, from this injury. So uh, yeah, it keeps coming back to the same thing, exercise therapy and whatever you can do, and that's typically gonna be patellar taping and a foot orthosis that allow you to load that patellofemoral joint a little bit more with more weight, that's going to result in better outcomes.
You published this paper back in 2019. We're speaking in 2022 now. There's a lot of water under the bridge since then. Is there, if you wrote this paper again, is there anything else that you would include that was omitted from the last time you wrote this? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great question. Uh, so there have been a couple of papers. Well, that, for instance, that foot orthoses paper from Mark Matthews that I just described has been written since this guideline came out. And that I think in the guideline, we say that people that have a, a flexible foot would benefit from a foot orthosis, but that's now been shown not to be the case. And that was a very large, uh, very large randomized control trial and it's very well done. Um, so I feel I have a lot of faith in that in that study. So it doesn't seem that foot type really predicts who's going to benefit from a foot orthoses. Uh, at the time that we published this uh, guideline, there was one paper that looked at blood flow restriction uh, training, and uh, that was done by Lachlan Giles at, uh, at La Trobe University with Jill Cook. And uh, what they found was that individuals who have more painful knee extension seem to do a little bit better with blood flow restriction training, when it, at least when it comes to improvements in strength. Um, their overall outcomes don't seem to really change either. And since then, another blood flow restriction training paper has come out with people who have patellofemoral pain and it found something very similar. It doesn't seem to result in this like, massive improvement in outcomes, but it does seem to help people gain strength a little bit faster and a little bit and a little bit earlier uh, than that. So um, other papers that have come out that have been, uh, that I think are probably noteworthy. I think that um, some of the work out of Denmark with uh, from Michael Rathliff and Sinead Holden has been really uh, quite remarkable. They've been doing a lot of work with, um, with adolescents who have patellofemoral pain. And what they're finding is that the treatment for people that were for adolescents with, with patellofemoral pain should look a little bit different than adults with patellofemoral pain. And for adults with patellofemoral pain, you kind of want to get in there right away and start doing a lot of strengthening with them. Uh, and whereas with adolescents with patellofemoral pain, there probably should be a more of a period to try to get the knee to kind of settle down and where you actually working on just really controlling workload and loads on that patellofemoral joint. Uh, and, and I think that's important too, because when you, when you look at taking a step back and looking at some of the risk factors for, uh, for the, the development of patellofemoral pain, particularly in adolescents, one of the biggest predictors that's coming out now is sport specialization. So if you're playing the same sport year round, that seems to increase your risk of developing patellofemoral pain by 50 to 75% over an adolescent peer of yours. So this idea of controlling workload in the adolescent seems to be really important because that's a, a time uh, when you know a lot of teenagers are being involved in different sports and they're practicing a lot and it might just be a little bit more workload than what they're able to tolerate. So um, there's that. And then I think the other really important paper is that uh, changes in hip strength when uh, during, during the recovery, and this is another paper from Michael Rathliff and Sinead Holden, is they're finding that that doesn't seem to predict who's going to recover from patellofemoral pain. So in other words, the amount of strength that you gain in your hips during rehabilitation doesn't seem to really be a, uh, a, a controlling factor in, in how quickly you recover or how much you recover from patellofemoral pain. All those papers that you mentioned could definitely be a podcast on their own. And um, I'm definitely going to get you back, Rich, and we're going to, I think we need to dissect this just a little bit further, but um, we're out of time today. So I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the Journal Club this week. Thanks, Randall. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in a minute after this short message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Mick Hughes from Learn.Physio. 
Join me and a panel of world-leading renowned researchers and clinicians as we delve into the ever-changing world of physiotherapy, bringing you evidence-based masterclasses, blogs, and insight interviews in partnership with some of Australia's and the world's leading physiotherapists. Head over to www.learn.physio to enroll in one of our online masterclass courses or sign up for our free weekly newsletter and join our community to stay up to date with new research and findings. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dr. Richard Willey. If you'd like to connect with him, you can find him on at rwillie2003 on Twitter and at Montana Running Lab on Instagram. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on at Randall C. Physio on Instagram and Twitter and Randall Cooper on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a favourable review and sharing this episode with your friends. I'm Randall Cooper and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Journal Club.